My name is Charles Goodhart and I'm your chairman for this evening and my pleasant job is to introduce our speaker David Miles who I've known for very many years. It's a very good time to have a talk on monetary policy um, and uh, bank capital and financial conditions because we're still in crisis mode. Situation is very fragile in many areas like Europe and the USA still if they haven't managed to cobble something to go together in the last few hours. Um, and David has a long career in history in dealing with monetary policy issues, uh, with bank capital issues where he's written one of the most uh, influential discussion papers uh, on bank capital requirements of the last a few years. Uh, having been both an academic uh, and a practitioner for a time as chief economist on the UK in Morgan Stanley, uh, he went a couple of years ago uh, to the Monetary Policy Committee where he's now very much of course uh, in the thick of things. So we're extremely privileged uh, to have David to talk to us this evening uh, on these uh, difficult problems that we're all facing. It's a very challenging period. Uh, you, you should know that challenging is the euphemism of our days. What challenging means is bloody awful. <laughs> um, so, David, if you'd like to talk about our challenging times, over to you. Thank you very much, Charles, for those kind words. So if I use the word challenging, you'll know exactly what that means from now on. Uh, and it's a, it's, a, it's a great pleasure to be at the London School of Economics, uh, where I've spent some time in the past and always, always enjoyed being here. And, and in many ways, the, um, the LSE, uh, I, mean, I think of it as almost the intellectual heart of the Monetary Policy Committee, because there have been a very large number of very distinguished members of the Monetary Policy Committee who have had very close links with the LSE. The current uh, governor of the Bank of England, Mervyn King, uh, was for many years a uh, professor here at the LSE. Charles Goodhart, who, who served with great distinction on the Monetary Policy Committee some years ago, obviously has an extremely long link with the LSE. Uh, one of the deputy governors of the Bank of England, Charlie Beam, was a professor here at the LSE for, for, for many years. And I can think of at least four other uh, past members of the Monetary Policy Committee who have been very distinguished academics at the London School of Economics. So I think, as I say, I, I think of it as the, as the intellectual home of the Monetary Policy Committee in, in, in many ways. And I think, therefore, it's a very good place to come and, and, and talk uh, and to have a discussion and a debate, and I hope we will uh, a little bit later, about monetary policy and, and the links between monetary policy and financial stability. Uh, and I think those links are, are, are strong and significant, and they've been particularly brought out in, in the last few years, because what, we're, what, we're, what we have been through and are still going through, I think, is, is really living in the, the aftermath of, of a major banking crisis. Uh, and clearly it was a crisis, not, not just a severe one in the UK, but across most of the, uh, most of the developed World, and it was a crisis which, which uh, reached an acute point in, in the autumn of 2008. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that the banking system in the UK came pretty close to total breakdown uh, at that time. Um, and it was followed 
in many countries, not just in the UK, by a dramatic decline in economic activity, a huge widening in fiscal deficits. Um, and now we see in many countries in Europe um, a, a crisis of confidence in sovereign debt. I, I think for the UK this was probably the most serious banking crisis in, in its history and, and, and in its wake output fell on a scale that was on some measures uh, I think as, as serious as the decline in output in, in what we now call the Great Depression. I think it's likely to be the longest of the six depressions since the first World War. Let me um, illustrate that. Oh, that's a bad mistake. <coughs> Let me illustrate that with a blank screen. Uh, I'm going to show you a picture in a minute of the path that output has followed in the major recessions that have hit the UK economy over the last hundred years or so. And I'm going to show you, I hope, the uh, deviation of output from the trend. That's more promising. Hooray. Uh, what this chart shows is it's, it's the deviation in output starting from the beginning of major recessions in the UK, going back to the Great Depression, the sort of sandy line, 1929, the deviation in output in each year after the beginning of the major slowdowns for these one, two, three, four, five uh, episodes from UK history. And the dark blue line, the one labelled 2008, is the path that output has followed relative to the trajectory or the trend that output seemed to be on in the years leading up to the onset of the crisis. Uh, and you can see a pretty uncanny resemblance in some ways between that sandy line, the 1929 line, and the dark blue 2008 line. The dotted line which starts um, about now, in fact, that is three or four years after 2008, it, it is simply taken from the central projection for the path of GDP in the May of this year inflation report of the MPC. So it's the MPC's collective judgment about the central uh, path on which output might f uh, follow for the next few years. And you can see that... That path remains very substantially beneath the zero, the hundred, the hundred line, and I think you'd agree that based on that chart, this has been an extraordinarily deep recession. The, the welfare losses are likely to have been very substantial. I mean, had the UK economy in the period since 2007, had the UK economy simply followed the trajectory it then appeared to be on, growing at around about 2.5%, the level of GDP in the UK now would have been around about 10% higher than it would appear to be today. Uh, that's a reduction in the level of income generated in the economy that's almost £6,000 a year for every household in the UK. Uh, and setting monetary policy in this environment has been uh, extremely uh, challenging, as Charles, Charles would say. Uh, and I want to talk about those difficulties. And my main aim this evening is to assess whether one of the policies to make the banking system more robust and make the likelihood of going through this kind of economic environment in the future 
much lower. One of those policies, namely to have banks hold substantially more capital relative to the assets on their balance sheet, whether it's the case that that response to the crisis, if you will, is itself likely to mean that the level of economic activity, the level of GDP will be lower than it otherwise would be. And in some sense, that would make the recovery from uh, today's position more difficult. I want to consider that proposition. But I think before doing that, I want to spend um, a few moments just considering how things have evolved since the uh, banking system, as I say, came close to, to near complete breakdown in the UK in the autumn of 2008. Um, I think the, the recovery from a recession that follows a banking crisis was, was always going to be difficult, but a banking crisis that followed an extremely large expansion in credit is particularly difficult. I mean, on, on average now, households and firms between them in, in aggregate um, are repaying uh, slightly more debt than they're taking on, so that's reducing leverage in, in the household sector. And after uh, the public debt in the UK really increased very dramatically, partly as a result of automatic fiscal stabilisers, partly as a result, to a lesser extent, a result of support for the financial system. After that, now we're going through a period of fiscal uh, tightening. Uh, some of this rebalancing, if you like, uh, I think would have been necessary even in the absence of a banking crisis. So the UK had a current account deficit which was substantial uh, and it existed for mu much of the, the 10 years leading up to the crisis. Uh, and there'd also been a dramatic rise in household indebtedness and that couldn't have continued in indefinitely. And on top of that, I think the rise in the size of the balance sheets of the UK banks uh, and in the levels to which their leverage had gone uh, also, uh, also was, was not sustainable. So I think there would have been a, a rebalancing clearly necessary in the UK even had there not been a banking crisis. But what, what is now happening is that rebalancing is taking place in the aftermath of a banking crisis when, when confidence is, is, is really quite low, the recovery is somewhat fragile, um, and the financial sector is still really recovering from a, from a shock which almost killed substantial parts of it. I think another aspect of the difficulty uh, of the situation at the moment is, is that many of the forces that bring about a necessary rebalancing in the economy are also forces that, that create at least short-term uh, inflation pressures. I mean, for example, the rise in the rate of VAT, which is one of the means of, of closing the fiscal deficit, uh, and the fall in the exchange rate, which is one of the means whereby the current account deficit is likely to be closed, uh, themselves, for, for, for some period after they've taken place, generate higher uh, inflation pressures. And if you add to that the impact of really very big rises in a whole range of commodity prices over the last year, which on average have risen by somewhere between 30 and 40 percent, um, that combination of events is very likely uh, to generate an inflation problem. And, and indeed, the level of inflation in the UK now really is, is, is a concern. Uh, as many people in this room will know, uh, inflation on the CPI measure uh, in, in the year to June is running at a bit more than 4%. That's double the target uh, of 2% that the, the MPC is given the task of trying to hit. Uh, and frankly, it's more likely than not that the inflation rate on the CPI measure of inflation, that inflation rate is likely to go somewhat higher in, in, in the near term, largely as, as, as a result of prices for domestic 
energy, which will rise really rather substantially uh, in, in a few months' time. Um, and the inflation rate is likely to stay well above the target level for, for, for some period yet. Uh, and the squeeze on household real incomes has, has been very large, ex exceptional really in, in, in the history of the UK. Now, some people have argued that the Monetary Policy Committee, as they've put it, in allowing inflation to remain high and well above the level of wage settlements, is somehow causing living standards of households in the UK to fall. And I think that's just a bit of bad economics. I think that's just plain wrong. I mean, the, the rise in taxes, the rise in VAT and in imported prices, particularly of commodities, I mean, they require that real disposable incomes uh, would be lower. I mean, if the things we import get more expensive, that will affect the living standards, the real disposable income of Households, uh, And that would not cease to be true if inflation were running at 2% rather than a little bit above 4%. Um, indeed, had the MPC followed the strategy of tightening monetary policy substantially to try and bring inflation very rapidly back to target, I think that would have probably meant that unemployment in the UK would be higher and the squeeze on real disposable incomes would be larger still. I mean, I'm not for one moment... Uh, denying that there's a, a, a problem with inflation. And there is a risk that if inflation remains above target for a sustained period, that, that will affect inflation expectations, that will feed into wage settlements, and that will become self-reinforcing. My, my point, though, at the moment is to just point out that the reason that living standards have fallen in the UK, the reason that real disposable incomes are being squeezed, is not because inflation has been 4% and wage settlements are running at 2 uh, that fall in living standards reflects the aftermath of the financial crisis and the need to rebalance the economy. Um, and th those, are, are, are not one, those are not things that one could call nominal phenomena. I think they are, they are real phenomena. Um, nonetheless, high inflation, I think, do, does pose uh, clear risks, and it can become persistent if it gets built into people's expectations and they're reflected in wage settlements. Um, I think the, the evidence... Uh, on longer-term household expectations of inflation is, is pretty mixed, and it's, it's not clear that inflation expectations have moved in a way that suggests that people think inflation will not come back to the target level. Um, I'm challenged once again by the array of buttons here. Let me see. I'm experimenting. Oh, dear. <laughs> Got it. Excellent. <laughs> Uh, one, of the, one of the interesting reactions of households to higher uh, inflation has, has not been so much to push for higher wage settlements. Um, and a survey that was conducted uh, on behalf of the bank asked households, what is your reaction to inflation being substantially above the, uh, the target level, 4% or slightly more? And the major response is those two substantial blocks there are people that said that actually their main response would be to shop around for better value or to cut back on spending and save more. And relatively few people said that their reaction to the situation was to push hard for higher wages. Um, and indeed the level of wage settlements, even though inflation has been relative to the standards of the last 15 years or so, actually relatively high, the level of wage settlements has been unusually low, running at about 2% or so. 
but with output dramatically lower than you might have expected it to have been, unemployment substantially higher, probably a significant amount of slack in the economy, and yet inflation well above the target level, uh, this is, as you'll appreciate, uh, an environment in which setting monetary policy is, is difficult. I think the MPC's remit is pretty clear, is very clear, in fact, on what the guiding principle is. The objective is to achieve the 2% inflation target. But the mandate, the job of the MPC, which is spelled out by the Chancellor of the Exchequer, it's the Chancellor of the Exchequer who defines what the job of the MPC should be, uh, also is pretty clear on what the response of the MPC might be to situations where inflation has been blown a long way from the target, largely as a result of events which might be described as shocks, which could have a temporary impact. And I just want to quote, if I may briefly, from the document that defines what the MPC should be aiming to do, a document, um, a letter, in fact, written by the Chancellor of the Exchequer. Uh, and I quote, The actual inflation rate will on occasions depart from its target as a result of shocks and disturbances, and attempts to keep inflation at the inflation target in these circumstances may cause undesirable volatility in output. And that's always been part of the, uh, the remit of the Monetary Policy Committee to recognise that fact. And, it, and in my view, that's exactly the situation we find ourselves in at the moment. A series of very large shocks, commodity and energy price increases, the depreciation of sterling, which really took place mainly in 2007, 2008, and, and the increase in indirect taxes have all contributed very substantially to push inflation well above the target level. I think in the absence of those things, and if inflation were to reflect the domestically generated underlying inflation pressures, um, the actual inflation rate would be very substantially lower. Um, and it might well mean a rate of inflation in the UK now that was significantly under the 2% target rather than substantially uh, above it. Uh, still, the fact is that the actual inflation rate is what it is, and it's likely to be significantly above the target for, for the rest of this year, uh, and indeed maybe much of next year. I mean, I, th I think the most likely outcome is that after that, as some of these temporary factors roll out of the year-on-year -year inflation rate, inflation will come back down. Um, I also think it's likely that, 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 that growth may well move back toward a more normal historical level in the UK, maybe even marginally above it. Um, should that be how things evolve, uh, I suspect it would still mean that uh, unemployment will be rather substantially higher than it was in the years leading up to the, the, the banking crisis, and that some degree of unused capacity will persist. And, and, no, and if, that, if that's what it were to happen, obviously the probability of that being exactly true is virtually zero, but if that were to be roughly what happened, I think no one could describe those outcomes as benign. Uh, and in many ways, that reflects the severity of the downturn, the scale of the rebalancing needed. And that, in turn, reflects the seriousness of the banking crisis. And Reinhardt and Rogoff really have shown that, that it's not unusual, after a major financial crisis, for the level of real economic activity to be substantially uh, depressed. In fact, a decline in GDP of 10% or so relative to trend is about par for the course following a very serious financial crisis. And I think we did have a very serious financial crisis. Uh, and much of the lost income and wealth uh, may well not come back. And I think all of that prompts the main question I want to address this evening, really, which is how do we present, how might we prevent a similar uh, crisis from happening 
again. And it, and it seems to me that uh, an important part of the answer to that is to make the financial system uh, far more robust, banks in particular more robust, and I believe this, the single most effective way to do this is to have banks use much more equity uh, relative to their assets than they have in the past, more equity, less debt to finance their activities so that leverage was reduced. And I think this would mean that banks could withstand uh, greater falls in the value of their assets before those who had provided debt became seriously concerned about the prospects of them getting their money back. Now, banks have uh, reduced uh, leverage, both in the UK, across Europe, and in the US uh, uh, as well, fairly substantially over the last few years. The um, yellow diamonds in this uh, picture show the average ratio or the average degree of leverage of major banks in, in, in the US, in Europe, and in the UK. So we measure leverage here as total assets relative to a measure of equity capital of uh, banks. And you can see that really since 2008, uh, leverage has fallen fairly substantially on average. And also, the leverage of the most highly levered banks has fallen very uh, substantially. Uh, I think it's a process that has some way to go, though. Um, and as many people will, uh, will know here, under, under the recently agreed uh, Bar 3 rules that, that uh, uh, define acceptable levels of capital, minimum capital, for banks, uh, banks will effectively, over time, have to uh, get to a position where their equity capital is at least 7% of their risk-weighted assets. Now, as a percentage of their total unweighted assets, that would be rather substantially lower. So if a bank had 8, 9, 10% of equity capital relative to its risk-weighted assets, given that its risk-weighted assets may be only a third or 40% or so of its total assets, the degree of leverage it could have could still be 20, 25, or, 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 or 30, even if it had equity capital relative to its risk-weighted assets that were, say, 10%. If the risk-weighted assets were only one-third of its total assets, its leverage could still be 30, uh, and that would still be consistent with the new rules of the game. Now, those new rules do mean that banks will have to hold more truly loss-absorbing capital, equity capital, than was true under Baal uh, two. But I don't think one should view the Baal three requirements as meaning that banks will get to a situation where they have extremely low uh, leverage. Leverage will still be high relative to non-financial institutions, and leverage would probably also be high, but still be consistent with the new rules. Leverage would still be high relative to what was normal for banks uh, in, in, in decades gone by. So although the new rules might mean that equity capital is substantially higher, uh, I don't think it will mean that it is high in an absolute sense. In, in, indeed, I've, I've argued uh, in a piece of research that Charles was, was kind enough to refer to earlier, I've argued that a ratio of common equity capital to assets that, that may be twice as high as the Baal three rules define might ultimately be closer to a desirable place to get to. But there is a very widespread view, a very widespread view, that having banks fund more of their activities, more of their assets through equity, uh, even if it happens 
gradually over a period of time will nonetheless be very costly. Costly to banks, it will mean they will have to increase their cost uh, of, of, of bank loans. It will reduce the level of bank lending, maybe of investment, therefore reduce the level of economic activity. I think that's a fairly widespread uh, view. And furthermore, it is true that over the last few years, when the amount of equity capital relative to assets of banks has indeed moved up, that has partly been because the level of assets of banks, risk-weighted assets, has declined. Um, this chart, if you look at the green line there, it's a, uh, a measure of what's called core tier one capital of UK banks relative to risk-weighted assets. The point about the picture is not so much the green line, it's simply to note that the amount of capital on this particular measure, this is really a Baal II measure, um, the amount of capital banks have, has indeed risen in the UK over the last few years. Now, it's been partly a result of banks actually having increased the amount of capital. They've got more equity. But it's also because they've reduced the amount of risk-weighted assets. So it's a combination of slightly smaller balance sheets, essentially, smaller risk-weighted assets, and a bit more capital has driven that ratio up. And some people will look at this chart and say, well, this seems to confirm the idea that if you want banks to have more capital, one of the things that will happen as a result of that is that they will lend less. Their assets, their balance sheets will, will, will shrink, and that will make it more difficult for people to finance investment in the economy. Now, I'm, I'm pretty sceptical, to be honest with you, about whether that's a particularly good interpretation of what has happen because one can think of a lot of reasons why bank lending may have been weak over the last few years. We have had a major financial crisis. The degree of confidence amongst firms and households has taken a huge hit. People's desire to uh, borrow from banks to finance consumption and investment is substantially lower than it was in 2006 and 2007. So there are plenty of reasons why bank lending may have been weak, really, which have not much to do with banks realizing that it's desirable to hold more equity. So I, I, I do not look at this picture and interpret it as a confirmation of the view that if you want banks to increase their capital ratios, the amount of equity relative to their assets, you have to pay a price in terms of substantially lower uh, bank lending. Um, nonetheless, the people who uh, strongly take the view that having banks use more equity, that is high, having higher capital ratios, will be very costly, uh, and that a result of that, banks will reduce their, their lending, often ask a very good question, which is where will the extra equity uh, come from? Uh, and I think that is a good question because the sums can be very large. For example, if you said today that banks in the US, across Europe, here in the UK, uh, needed to double the amount of common equity they have from today's levels, then that would mean, uh, roughly speaking, that you might need something like a trillion dollars of extra equity. And you might say that even if banks were to be allowed several years to raise that much equity, it, it seems an enormous uh, challenge to induce you know, reluctant investors to put that much new money into banks. Um, but I'm going to argue that there are some good economic reasons, some fundamental reasons for believing that if banks are required to gradually, not immediately, but gradually over a period of years, raise 
amounts of equity that are comparable to that, very substantial increases in equity, uh, that actually it won't pose great difficulties for banks and have substantial negative knock-on impacts on the wider economy. I mean, the first, point, the first point I would make there is that the numbers look very high, of course, when you set them against the existing levels of common equity. A trillion dollars is a very large number relative to the equity capital of banks across Europe uh, and in the US. But it's not such a large number relative to the overall balance sheet of those institutions. Um, let me give you um, some numbers for UK banks about their sources of funding. So what, what I'm doing here is just looking at the total funds that UK banks have, their total liabilities, that, that equals their total assets. So imagine on the other side of the balance sheet, they've got, they've got um, loans to households, loans to companies, uh, and other securities. This is the funding side of the balance sheet. Deposits of one sort or another make up a, a substantial proportion. Many of those deposits actually come from other banks. So under the counterparty column in this picture here, it's where does the money come from? So deposits come from other banks, from private non-financial companies. Substantial amount come from households, although actually in total, only about a sixth of the overall liabilities of major banks in the UK actually are in the form of retail deposits. And a very large proportion of deposits actually come from other non-bank financial companies. Then there are various kinds of bonds, medium-term notes, other kinds of debt securities. Debt that is not a, a, a deposit, an example would, would be a bank bond, largely held by financial corporations and other banks. And then toward the bottom, we find equity. And equity is about 5% of the total balance sheet. So if you were to double equity, uh, that can look a very large number. But another way to put it is that it would involve a switch of only about 5% of the total liabilities of banks switching from debt into equity. Now, I'm not suggesting that's a trivial thing to do, um, but nonetheless, it's one way of thinking about the scale of the transformation. To, or to put the point, in, in a sense, it's a blindingly obvious point. If you start out with a really rather low level of equity, even doubling the amount of equity doesn't involve switching a very large proportion of what is currently debt financing into some kind of equity financing. Second point to make is that you could think of it as a portfolio switch. This does not require, if you ask banks to hold very substantially more equity, let's, let's say double the amount of equity, gradually to be built up over a period of years, that doesn't mean that banks have to find huge amounts of net new funding. Think of it as a portfolio switch, switching some proportion of liabilities which are currently debt contracts into equity contracts, a portfolio switch. Now, nonetheless, it might look like a very large portfolio switch. But I want to think about the economics of how that might happen and challenge the view that such a portfolio switch, that is, persuading some people who currently are providing debt financing to banks to provide equity financing instead, I want to challenge the view that that will be very difficult. And one way to think about that is to, is to ask a simple question, which is who owns existing bank debt and equity? And in a sense, this, this table gives you much of the answer. Of course, in some sense, the answer is 
obvious. The people who ultimately provide debt and equity finance have to be households, you and me, ind individuals. There's nowhere else for the money to come from. Of course, how, how it happens is pretty indirect. If we set aside uh, deposits for the moment and just, just focus upon the equity and the bonds, the non-deposit debt liabilities of banks, they overwhelmingly are not held by households directly, but they are held by financial <coughs> intermediaries. In fact, if we just focus for a moment on the question about who owns equity in UK banks, there's a breakdown of the ownership structure of the equity of major UK banks. There's a tiny little block there you can hardly see, which is labelled individual, and that's 1%. So individual household direct ownership of bank equity is extremely small. Um, the government owns some shares in UK banks right now. Uh, pension funds, insurance companies, mutual fund managers own non-trivial amounts. But a large part of it, by the lion's share of it, in fact, almost 60%, is held by... Um, what are, what are labelled here investment advisors. They are people, people who are managing money on behalf of households, sometimes managing money on behalf of pension funds who are managing themselves the money on behalf of households. But they're, they're large financial intermediaries managing money on behalf of uh, someone else. This picture is, is, is very similar if we looked at US banks and German banks as well. Uh, Let's assume for the moment, I, I want to conduct a sort of rather simplistic thought experiment. And let's assume just for the moment that all, all bank equity and all the non-deposit debt of banks, which is a very substantial part of their overall debt, let's assume that all that is owned by a single financial intermediary, an intermediary that we can think of as an asset manager that has some of the characteristics of a pension fund, a unit trust, an insurance company, a hedge fund, all rolled into one. Now, suppose that in order to reduce leverage, banks then undertake a portfolio switch of their liabilities. They issue some more equity and retire a corresponding amount of, of bonds. Not deposits, think of it as retiring uh, non-deposit debt, bank bonds. What you'd find is that if, if we think of the equity in the bank bonds as being essentially held by one large financial intermediary managing the money on behalf of households, and think of that as an asset manager, that asset manager, I would argue, you could think of the economics of what's happening as the following, that they would find that in order not to change the underlying characteristics of their portfolio. So they've got a portfolio that partly owns bank equity, partly owns bank non-deposit debt as well. If they want to keep the economic characteristics, the risk and return characteristics of their portfolio unchanged, what they will want to do is sell bank bonds to match the bank's desire to retire bank debt and buy the new equity that's issued by the bank. And if they do that, their risk is little 
changed. I mean, essentially, if you own all the bank equity, imagine our single asset manager owns the bank equity. That's equivalent to essentially owning all the assets of the bank but having a liability which is the bank debt. Uh, and that liability, if you also own a substantial amount of bank debt, actually the neutral thing is to just do the offsetting transaction to what, what the bank's doing. The bank wants to buy back some of its debt, you sell it back, you take a bit more equity. Let me, let me um, give you a sort of simple numerical example. And to many people in the room, I think this will be very familiar as kind of Medigliani-Miller-type reasoning. But let me just uh, illustrate it with some, some simple uh, numbers. So suppose we start from a position where the typical bank has assets of 100. It's financed 95 of debt of various sorts, some deposits, some, some, some bonds, and five of equity. And let's assume that those who own the bank equity um, understand the nature of their investment. And their investment really is equivalent to having a portfolio that's equivalent to owning all the bank assets, the hundred of bank assets, and being short the bank debt. Uh, and let's assume that those who own the bank equity also own a bit, a bit of bank debt. So they own the bank equity and they own some part of probably the non-deposit debt liabilities of the bank. And you start from a position where there's five of equity, 95 of debt, and the bank decides, right, we're going to halve the leverage. We're going to try and switch five of bank bonds into equity. So we'll buy back five of bank bonds and we'll issue five of Equity. Now that looks a big change, and it would actually halve the leverage, and it would double the amount of equity funding. Uh, but I think it's, it's in an ideal world, it's, it, the economics of it suggests that it's pretty easy to do that because the financial intermediary that owns the bank equity and owns some bank debt will find that what they can do is they can buy all the new equity, sell five of their debt, uh, and they'll still have essentially the same portfolio. Here's how it might work at, at the risk of showing you a trivial example. Supposing you start out from a position where there's the, bank, there's the bank's balance sheet, the top left block here. It's got assets of A, it's got some debt, and it's got some equity. We said assets are 100, capital D debt is 95, equity is 5. The equity investor, think of it as our financial intermediary, our large-scale financial intermediary, which acts on behalf of households, manages a lot of their money for them, owns all the bank equity and owns a chunk of the bank bonds as well. What's the value of the equity? Well, it's really the value of the assets minus the debt outstanding. That's what you own if you own an equity claim you've got the total value of the assets of the institution whose equity you own minus any debt obligations it has. Our equity investor, this is our financial intermediary, also owns some bank bonds as well, and I'll denote those with a little d. So if you add up the total economic value, the characteristics of the portfolio of our equity investor, its value is total bank assets A, minus all the debt outstanding of the bank, capital D, plus that part of the bank's debt that is actually held by this financial intermediary. So it may have bought some bank bonds as well. That's our little d. 
Let's do our portfolio switch. It's pretty straightforward. What the bank wants to do is reduce its debt funding by five. So now we're in the right-hand block, the top right-hand block in this picture here. It's going to reduce its debt financing uh, of, by the order of five. It's going to look to increase its equity funding by five. Let's suppose that our equity investor decides that it will buy all this equity and it will sell its bank bonds back to the bank in order to make it happen. So it's completely self-financing. The value of the equity stake that the investor then has will have gone up to A minus D, but D is smaller by five. So the value of the equity has gone up. The value of its bonds, of course, has gone down because it sold bonds back to the bank in order to buy the equity. So the value of its bonds is little d, but it sold five. What's the total economic worth of that portfolio? Bottom right-hand entry there, and a truly insultingly trivial piece of algebra uh, shows that it's exactly the same. It hasn't changed at all. I mean, this, this people, uh, many of you will recognize here Medigliani Miller type arguments. Essentially, what happens is that the person that owns the equity, if they simply watched the leverage of the bank fall and didn't do anything about it, the economic characteristics of their investment would change because they'd have a less levered investment. If they wanted to put themselves back in the same position as to start with, in our example here, they would have to buy the new equity issued and sell some of their bank bonds. And because much of the equity owned by banks is owned by large financial intermediaries, many of whom also do own bank bonds, bank debt, that's something which could realistically happen in the real world. Now, I think it's going to be all a little bit more difficult and complicated than that, partly because some financial intermediaries specialize just in holding equity and don't have any bank bonds, and others are fixed income asset managers who own debt and don't own equity. So it's not the case that single, a single entity has enough of bank equity and owns bank debt that it can simply unravel the transaction directly. And indeed, if you look at the kind of um, asset mixes among some of the most important financial intermediaries managing money on behalf of households, many of those intermediaries specialize simply in equity, many specialize simply in fixed income, and not that many actually have so-called balanced mandates. In other words, an, inv an investment manager who runs both debt and equity in their portfolio. It's a busy chart. There's a lot of information there. Really, the line I want to focus on for a moment is the UK one, where you can see that many of these kind of fund managers are equity only or bond only, and there's a relatively small number who are balanced funds. Pension funds, however, typically do own both debt and equity, and hedge funds uh, not only sometimes own debt, but they can go short debt because they can borrow as well. So there certainly are financial intermediaries out there who can undertake the kind of offsetting portfolio switch that Medigliani-Miller suggests will happen. And of course, because it's part of the Medigliani-Miller theorem under another guise, it has the same implications as Medigliani-Miller, namely that a reduction in leverage by banks switching some debt funding into equity funding will be both smooth and easy to undertake and will not increase their overall cost of funding. That is the Medigliani-Miller theorem. Now, 
There are lots of, lots of reasons why things aren't going to be as smooth as that in the real world. Partly, there will be fund managers who will need to change their mandates if they're going to be selling equities and switching their portfolios. This is not going to be frictionless and easy and happen in a straightforward very, very quickly. Nonetheless, I think in thinking about the longer-term implications of banks coming to use more equity funding and less debt, actually, the Medigliani-Miller way of thinking about things is at least a useful starting uh, point. Now, in practice, the predictions of that theory I don't think will hold perfectly, but, but you couldn't expect really a uh, simple theoretical framework to explain reality one for one. But I, I don't think that means that it's useless, any more than Newton's laws of motion and laws of, of, of gravitational force are useless. Um, if you think about Newton's laws, which tell you what will happen if you drop a heavy weight off a tall building, if you just use the equations, uh, which are really for the motion of objects in a frictionless world, they will overstate the speed with which the object will drop, and they will underestimate how long an object will take to hit the ground. Because in the real world, there is air resistance, unless things happen in a perfect vacuum. And so in that sense, Newton's pure theoretical predictions aren't a, aren't a perfect guide for what happens in the world. Now, I think it would be nonsensical to say that because those uh, predictions based on an assumption of frictionless movements aren't 100% accurate, therefore they are 100% useless. That would be a very bizarre uh, way of thinking about, about Newton's insight. And I think much the same goes for Medigliani-Miller. We can think of reasons why there are frictions in the world that mean it doesn't work perfectly. The sensible response to that is to think how substantial those frictions are do they become less important if you allow time for things to happen? So I think that's the useful way of thinking about Modigliani-Miller. Now, there are perfectly sensible and indeed extremely insightful theories about the structure of funding of banks that would seem to predict that if you ask banks to finance substantially more of their activities from equity and less from debt, that may prove to be problematic. And I want to spend, I mean, literally a couple of minutes, if I may, before, before uh, concluding, just thinking about one particularly influential, and I think very insightful way of thinking about banks. Um, and it's a theory that was developed uh, some years ago by um, Douglas Diamond and uh, Rajaram uh, Rajan. And their argument was that there's a reason why banks might need to finance a very high percentage of their activities, their assets, from debt, which is demandable, so that people can get their money back at short notice. And their argument, roughly speaking, and I spell it out in a little more detail in, in, in the written version of, of my comments this evening, which, if anybody has an interest, is available on the Bank of England website from about now, actually. Uh, but, but the, the essence of the Diamond and Rajan argument goes a bit like this. It's difficult for people that provide debt to be perfectly confident and sure about what the management of banks are doing with their money. And maybe the bank's management are taking a few more risks than they would like. Maybe they're paying themselves large amounts in remuneration and reducing the probability that people who provided debt will get their money back. One of the advantages of 
demandable debt. Think of it as retail deposits where you can go to the bank and ask to get your money out there and then. One of the advantages, uh, according to um, Diamond and Rajan, of that kind of funding is that if it looks like banks management are taking advantage of their control of the assets to try and either take too many risks or cream off some money for themselves, that individuals who have retail deposits with the bank that they can get out at short notice will respond to that by simply going to the bank, getting their money out. There'll be a bank run. That will mean the end of the bank. And that's what disciplines the management of the bank. So demandable deposits that you can get out at short notice have the advantage that because thousands and many thousands, millions of individual depositors find that the rational response, they're not going to coordinate between themselves on some response, that the individually rational thing to do if you think there's a chance that your money's being mismanaged is to just go and get your money out. And that's a disciplining device. Uh, the reason why I don't think that that <coughs> argument is a devastating counter to the proposition that if a bank switched some of its debt financing into equity would be relatively easy, is that the kind of debt financing really I'm thinking about are not demandable retail deposits held by individuals that can get their money out at short no notice on demand, but actually what you might call wholesale debt funding, bank, bank bonds of, of, of various sorts. And those bank bonds, much as the equity of banks, are largely held by other financial institutions and they're not demandable retail deposits at all. This is an indication of who owns the, a substantial part anyway, of the non-retail deposit liabilities of banks. What I'm going to show you is a couple of pictures showing who buys, who buys new issues of different kinds of non-deposit bank liabilities. So senior debt issued by banks, covered bonds, who buys them in recent years? It's been pretty much the same people that have bought the equity. Asset managers, other banks, insurers, and pension funds. That's true for senior unsecured debt. It's true for covered bonds. It's also true for so-called subordinated debt. So I think that a very large proportion of the debt that banks have actually doesn't have the characteristics of debt that the Diamond, Ra Diamond Rajan theory implies that you need for disciplining. Or to put the point another way, a substantial proportion of the non-deposit debt of banks has rather similar characteristics in terms of who owns it and also in terms of its disciplining uh, properties, rather similar characteristics as the equity. Uh, and therefore, I think a switch from that kind of debt into equity is likely to be relatively straight forward. Let me um, briefly conclude and come back to the problem that I posed at, at the outset, which really was, do policies that over time make the banking system much more robust, do those policies, and I think one of the most important of them is to have banks finance much higher proportion of their activities using equity. If you went down that road, maybe even further than we're going down that road at the moment under Baal III, if you went down that road, would that reduce the supply of funding to companies and households, reduce the level of economic activity, make the recovery from 
the crisis we've just been through that much more difficult. Uh, I've tried to outline some Medigliani-Miller-type thinking, which I think is relevant in thinking through the economics of how that might play out if you allowed for a gradual transition over several years to much higher levels of equity. And I think that whilst there might be severe frictions if you tried to force banks to increase their amount of equity funding in a very short time horizon, I think those frictions are likely to be much, much less significant if you allowed for a gradual transition. And I think that means that if the switch to uh, bank funding patterns where they use more equity can happen gradually, it's likely to create relatively few difficulties uh, and have low costs. And that, that's... Uh, if that's right, that's, that's very good news. It means that the benefits of a more stable banking sector come at relatively low costs. Uh, and I think, in conclusion, that's why, uh, precisely why having banks hold substantially more capital uh, you know, is likely to play a really crucial role in making the financial system safer, reducing the probability that in trying to set monetary policy you face the kind of difficulties that we've faced over the last few years. Let me stop on that, on that note. David has agreed to take questions. There are some roving microphones. If you'd like to put up uh, your hand, if you want to. I see a gentleman in a, with a beard over there. Uh, thank you. I'm uh, Lee Caldwell from uh, INON. We're a behavioral consultancy. Um, one argument that's been made is that um, by, by people like Garrett Jones is that a lot of the fragility in the banking system has come not just from uh, leverage, but also from the fact that bank assets are uh, perhaps too highly correlated with each other. So when something goes wrong for one bank, for it's overinvested in uh, property or in, in mortgage-backed securities, uh, the same thing has happened to all the banks, and therefore it's been uh, impossible to just let uh, some of them go bust or let some of them rely on, on their equity. Um, do you agree with that? If so, is there a way to... Uh, reduce or to measure and to reduce the amount of correlation uh, between banks? Could that be reflected in their capital requirements? Um, I think when you have a very serious economic event that, that hits the value of many kinds of assets that banks hold, it's highly likely that they will affect the value of the assets of all banks. And it's very difficult to avoid correlation when you have a big macro event that is, is not idiosyncratic to a particular bank or particular region of the country. So I, I think it's pretty difficult actually to imagine trying to construct a banking system where banks have very uncorrelated portfolios of assets. I think that's a pretty hard thing to try and um, manage. And that's why I think a, a, a better way of addressing the issue, the problem, if you will, is to just make banks in general more robust to either actual losses in their assets or fears about losses on their assets. I mean, one of, one of the tricky things with banks is, of course, it, 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 it's difficult, particularly in a fast-moving world where people start to worry about stuff, to work out what their assets are really worth. Um, even if you thought that in ordinary times they were pretty uncorrelated, you may well come to believe that when things really go badly wrong, actually the correlations between what happens to different banks get very high. 
And that's why I, I, I think that the, 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 the better line of defense, if you like, is just to have substantially more equity capital so that those people that have provided debt, even if they become rather nervous about whether the assets might have fallen by 3, 4, 5, 6% in value, if they know that there's equity capital there of 10, 15, 20%, um, they're much less likely to want to pull their, pull, pull their funding away because they think that it's a much more robust institution. So that's why I, th I think, to, to me, the single, the single most powerful policy is, is, is really just re increase equity funding. Gentleman in the middle of the glasses. Second row. Yeah, Bernard Casey from Warwick University. Could you comment upon these proposals and suggestions about hybrid bonds and things which can be switched into equity? I have my views about them, but I'd like to hear yours. Um, I, I mean, I'm, I'm somewhat open-minded about it in the sense that I know there are smart people out there who say it's a very good idea and there aren't, there aren't particular problems in designing triggers and you won't get into death spirals because of the way you define the trigger event. There are also some smart people there who have a great respect for who argue that actually it's extremely difficult to work out what the appropriate trigger is that will convert you know, debt into equity. It's difficult to do that in a way that avoids self-fulfilling panics almost driving it. Now, I'm, I'm unclear about who has the better arguments there. I think my feeling is that if it were the case, if it were the case that asking banks to have substantially more common or garden ordinary equity, if that were indeed extraordinarily costly, then maybe one would go down the road of thinking about these hybrid instruments. But if one believes, as I, as I do, that actually having more common or garden ordinary equity that doesn't need to convert, it's just there, it's loss absorbing, straightforward, simple stuff that we understand, if having banks hold a lot more of that actually doesn't generate lots of economic costs, why would you take the risks with the hybrid stuff where there, there must be some uncertainty about quite how the triggers will play out in practice? Lady in glasses, second row, and, and after that, the man in glasses next to her. <laughs> um, Professor Miles, I, Walter Shakley from LSE. I have understood your argument that you said um, raising capital requirements for banks would make them safer and it is not as costly as you might think. But is making that argument with a Modig Modigliani-Miller type of argument not self-defeating? Because if we would live in a Modigliani-Miller world, we wouldn't need capital requirements in the first place. Um, well, it, 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 may look like, it may look like something of a, how should I put it, a paradox, to say on the one hand, that the Digliani Miller is quite a useful way of thinking about the impact or, or, or on banks of changing their funding mix because it tells you that actually it, it's kind of pretty neutral. And on the other hand, to argue that actually it's very useful and there are big economic advantages in having more leverage. But I, I don't think there is a contradiction in, in, in those two things. And I know you didn't put the question quite that way, but, but I think my, maybe that's the flavor of the question. And I think the answer is something like this. You could imagine a world in which it is not particularly costly for banks to switch their funding. It does make them more robust and reduces the chances of bankruptcy. The benefits of that don't particularly accrue to banks, 
but they accrue to the customers of banks, say, for example, companies that rely very heavily on a particular bank, whose ability to raise funding would be seriously injured if that bank happened to have to close because it got into trouble. So I think some of the major benefits of having higher equity, lower leverage, are that the collateral damage that's done when a bank does get into trouble, which is largely damage done outside the banking system and may not even be damage done for the people that provided funds, but the people who rely on banks for their funding, that damage doesn't happen because you reduce the frequency of bank insolvency problems. So I think, I think you can have an argument that the costs of banks becoming more robust are small, the benefits are large because you don't have such frequent financial crises and the people that pay for that are actually not the banks, not the people that fund the banks, but the people who rely on banks for debt. Next. Uh, Frank Fenmans from the University of Mons. My question is somewhat uh, related. Uh, the Modigliani and Miller uh, ID predicts that when you have very high levels of leverage that the total cost of capital can uh, uh, increase. So my question is why were banks so motivated to, to get these high level of le leverages if Modigliani and Miller holds? <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, I think that's a, that's a good question. And I mean, to be honest with you, I'm not, I haven't got a very convincing answer. Partly because my own experience for what it's worth is that when I've had discussions with, 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 with people, particularly who work in banks, I, I think they find the Medigliani-Miller way of thinking about it so alien that, that they think one is talking double Dutch. And it's quite difficult sometimes to, to engage in that debate. I can think of some reasons why, in terms of the private costs to a bank, there are reasons for wanting quite high leverage. One is tags. If it's the case, if it's the case that uh, debt is is treated in an advantageous way relative to equity through the tax system, then that's one reason why Modigliani Miller won't hold. And banks, like non-banks, can deduct the uh, interest payments on their debt against their corporate tax bill, uh, and they can't do that with profits that are paid out as dividends or that create capital gains for shareholders. So one argument is it's to do with tax. Now, if, if that's one of the main reasons, then of course banks from their point of view are being completely rational in saying that it's costly to make us banks have lower leverage. Of course, it doesn't generate an overall economic or social cost because the government loses out in terms of lower tax revenue to exactly the same extent that banks gain by paying lower corporation tax. So if you look through the thing and define it in terms of overall economic costs or social costs, the tax argument would drop out as a compelling reason why banks should be allowed to high, have high leverage. Um, there is another uh, slightly more sinister, almost cynical argument as to why banks might want high leverage. And I, I'm not sure I believe it, but let me put it to you anyway. And it is that if you have high leverage and as shareholders you have limited liability, and if a bank does get into trouble, and it's a big one, the government will step in and help, that you maximise the value of that state support by having very high leverage and running a relatively risky operation. I mean, the, the economic logic of that is, is completely watertight. The reason why I 
I'm, I'm not really persuaded it was part of the argument, is that I, I rather doubt, to be honest with you, whether those running banks thought that the game they were playing was to try to maximise the value of state support by having a high probability of needing to be bailed out by the government. Um, I, I mean, I just don't think that was in, the, in, in people's mindset. So I think there are some economic arguments as to, as to why it might be helpful. I'm very doubtful whether they are economic arguments that generate overall economy-wide benefits of high leverage, though there may be arguments as to why in terms of the private costs and benefits to a bank and its shareholders, having high leverage has some advantages. Next questioner is up, up there. Emma McKee from Arian Fund Management. Hi. Hello. Um, this whole thing has changed my investment opportunity set. Um, I work at a pension fund in, right. in asset allocation. And it was interesting with, your, the, with the balance sheet of a bank, the opportunity for me now is rather than, it's not the debt or egg, well, it's taking the bank loans, packaging them up so I can get a risk return, the same as what I would with their bonds, with an investment bank changing the risk profile of what I'm buying, at a discount from what's on their balance sheet. So that, and then also I'm, I'm higher up the um, capital structure of the bank, so there's less risk than if I was to go and buy the bonds. So it's a whole new investment structure, but then also the banks are looking more like some sort of regulated utility. You're saying there's going to be more equity for the banks. Who's going to buy them? I mean, the equities of the banks have underperformed. I, and we've had passive investors. They're a smaller balance sheet, so there's going to be even less. Just I don't understand quite, even if the passive investors come in, where's all this excess equity going to come from? Who wants to invest in them? Well, I, I mean, the, 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 the logic of the answer of a Medigliani-Miller way of thinking about it is ask the question, who owns the equity already? Because obviously there is equity there. There are owners of equity. Now, they have had a rough time because bank share prices have fallen. Um, the question, of course, for the equity holder is not so much, well, I've just lost a substantial amount because bank share prices three or four years ago were higher than they are now. The question must be a sort of more forward-looking one, which is, what's the optimal portfolio? History is history. We are where we are. What's the expected rate of return and risk characteristics of my portfolio going into the future? And the logic of the sort of Medigliani-Miller stuff is that if a bank keeps its assets exactly where they were, no change in the assets, but reduces its leverage issues a bit more equity and uses it to buy back bonds. If you already own some of the equity and you're happy with the risk and return characteristics of the equity that you hold, when the bank then announces a strategy of reducing leverage, it is going to be changing the characteristics of your investment. And if you want to neutralize that and get back to the portfolio you were happy with, you are going to want to buy some of that new equity and finance it either through selling bank debt if you already own bank debt or actually borrowing if you don't. And that's the mechanism whereby it kind of happens in a frictionless world, costlessly, so that the extra demand, so the extra supply of equity coming onto the market from the bank is exactly matched precisely by the extra demand. It's, it's what is needed 
to preserve the risk and return characteristics of the portfolio of those who are already owning the bank equity. Uh, Toby Chim is uh, We Care Foundation. Uh, last night there was a really great debate with um, Keynes and Hayek and uh, George Selgan um, came to the view that um, the, the system should have been purged back in 2008. The response was very much a Keynesian response and the whole system should have been purged. Banks should have been allowed to fail. I know that would have been quite catastrophic for a time, but now we've got this situation where we've got sort of zombie banks floating around. Are we going to get out of the mess? Um, well, I'm not, I'm not quite sure which, which banks you, 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 you mean and whether you're thinking of banks in the UK or not. I mean, I think if you're talking about banks in the UK, I, I don't quite recognise the sort of zombie bank description. I mean, there, I'm sure there are banks in the world for whom the adjective zombie may well be right. Um, I don't think, and maybe I'm just being too hopeful, but I don't, I don't think that would apply to the UK banks, who I, th and those are the ones, to be honest, in my job on the Monetary Policy Committee are of most concern because they affect economic conditions here in the UK. Um, I think as regards the UK banks, I, I, I actually they are on what, what I would consider to be rather a helpful trajectory of having made their balance sheets you know, considerably more robust. The leverage has come down. I mean, they have done the difficult things. They've raised equity and their capital ratios are higher. I mean, I, I think that usefully has a long way still to go. and I think it should be allowed to happen gradually. Um, but I, I don't think I would use the word zombie for the major institutions in the UK. Um, I know they wouldn't. There is a questioner up there. There we are. And then the next one is lady in the back. And after that, I'm only going to take two more because we, we have got to, uh, to finish. Whilst I accept your explanation that uh, the management of banks weren't consciously gaming the free insurance they had from uh, government, uh, it seems that investors were quite conscious of the qualitative shift this had on banks' behaviour insofar as they had uber-safe um, loan capital and, uh, you know, a risky sort of high-performing equity which was, which was supported by, um, by this you know, cheap insurance on, well, free insurance on the loan, um, loan aspect of, of banks' liabilities. Um, my question is really, insofar as the whole aim of this is to reduce the government's, uh, well, eradicate the government's free insurance, uh, doesn't your sort of... Mogdi Ali Miller, Miller ex explanation also require um, the uh, Ricardian equivalents uh, to hold as well insofar as people, people sort of investing in these, these uh, instruments were also on the hook for the government support and so you're kind of using sort of the two most heroic, heroic, assumption, assumption, uh, heroic assumption economics theories in, in, in existence as to... Uh, I mean, you're, you're, right, you're right in a sense that the, the, the simple prediction of Medigliani Miller and it's all neutral, it's all costs, everything works fine, is absolutely a, uh, you know, a, an idealised Newtonian friction-free world where things behave exactly as they should. And it is unrealistic to think that that's the world we live in. But I think if, if, one, if one thinks about one of the most important parts of the Medigliani Miller type reasoning... I think it's likely to work pretty well, and, and, it, and it's this. I mean, part of the Medigliani-Miller mechanism is that if you have a bank that has very high leverage and it moves to much lower leverage, 
That will affect the volatility in the value of the equity. It will affect the variability in the returns of the equity, and that should have an impact on the required rate of return on that equity. And that's, as I know you recognise, you know, is one one of the, the key economic forces at work that makes Medigliani Miller operate. And I think that's not implausible. I mean, one of the reasons why I think people that say, oh, bank equity is expensive, in some sense are right, is that if you start in a world in which banks have leverage of 30, 40, 50, and that was the world we were in a few years ago, if you've got an institution with leverage of 50, the value of its equity is going to be enormously sensitive to small changes in the assets. The volatility in the rate of return in the equity will be very high. And risk-averse investors in equity will demand, on average, a high expected return on their equity because they've got a very risky investment. So in that sense, I think people, uh, and you, you, you hear it frequently from, from, from um, people in the sort of financial market who say, well, bank equity is expensive, are indeed right if what, if what they mean is, starting from where we have been, the required rate of return on equity is a, a substantial, large, positive number. I think where, where they don't do justice, the Medigliani-Miller-type reasoning, and why I think it should be taken seriously, is they don't, they don't then push through to the corollary of that, which is if you then reduce leverage very substantially, you would reduce, and held the assets the same, you would reduce the volatility of the equity. If you have risk-averse equity investors, why wouldn't they alter their required rate of return on the equity? I mean, that's how we think capitalism kind of works. There's risk, there's return, people need compensation for taking more risks. To deny that is to deny one of the fundamentals of how all financial markets are supposed to work. So that's why I, I kind of think that the Medigliani-Miller stuff, which of course to the 100% accuracy detail does rely on everything working perfectly and no, no uh, frictions, that's very unlikely. But is it, is it still a useful and powerful way of thinking about the big impacts of things in the longer term. I think it's about as useful as the sort of Newtonian laws of motion of objects, which tell you if you did drop something off a, off a tall building, it's going to fall very fast and it's going to accelerate and it's going to hit the ground. And, you know, that's, that's, that's what happens. Um, hello. Uh, whilst I accept that this policy may not directly reduce economic activity, as explained, I just was wondering if you could explain how it might actually directly help the economy right now actively, in terms of not reducing. Well, to be honest with you, I, I, I think I mean the the argument I've been laying out is an argument for how do we get to a position some way down the road so that the probability of the kind of really devastating event that took place in this country and in many other countries a few years ago, the near total breakdown of the banking system. How do we get into a position where that has a much lower probability of happening? I think a major part of the answer is to have banks have a lot more equity, a lot lower leverage. I, I think trying to get to that position very quickly in the next six months, year, even 18 months, would not be at all sensible because there are indeed frictions that make it costly to move very, very quickly in terms of portfolios and fund managers ch changing their asset allocation. Uh, and so I don't believe that this strategy of having the banking system become much more robust with lower leverage is something that we should pursue very rigorously in a very tight time horizon like 
six months, 12 months or so. I think that would be the most unhelpful, frankly, and it certainly wouldn't help in the economic situation we find ourselves at the moment in the UK, a weak economic recovery and the difficulties that we kind of try and grapple with on the Monetary Policy Committee. So I think my time horizon for thinking about this policy of making the banking system more robust is a much longer term one. And if you will, it's to try and make sure that, you know, my kids and my grandchildren and great-grandchildren, if I have them, you know, have a very low probability of going through the kind of thing that we're having to deal with now. Um, <clears throat> one, one of the things that seems to be missing from the analysis is the fact we're looking at the UK as an isolated island, but in fact the banks have many international connections. Right. And if we get, as we may well have, defo countries defaulting, uh, certainly German banks will have been in a very difficult position and all of that surely will come across to us. And the, the, the slow defense that you're suggesting for the UK on its own will be swept under the water as the, everything goes bust, even without America joining in the fun. But there surely must be a big impact, and we're not, we're not our own masters in time <coughs> in this sort of analysis. And in time-wise, we're not as well. Yeah. I mean, you, you, you're absolutely right to point out that you can't isolate yourself in the UK from wider international economic events that have a huge knock-on impact on, 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 on UK banks and on, on the UK economy. That's absolutely true. We are a small, open economy. Um, in some ways, I think the, the desirable longer-term strategy for, uh, as I put it, reducing the probability that we... Uh, and I'm, by we, I don't mean just us in the UK, but... <laughs> across Europe, North America, you know, the countries where there have really been a severe set of banking problems. The way to put oneself in a much stronger position, I think, is, is ideally to proceed in unison and to all have our banks much more robust uh, and therefore to have higher equity capital, lower leverage for everybody gradually phased in over time. And that would be you know, I think, I think the ideal way to proceed through this, which is why I think the Baal process is, you know, the right way to think about this happening. My own view is that Baal three goes in the right direction. I don't think it goes far enough. Maybe we have to wait for Baal four or Baal five. But, you know, if it happens over the next 10, 15 years, in the greater scale of things, that will still be a useful thing to, to, to have happened. Um, but I think, to be honest with you, you know, what I'm talking about, coming back really to, to the previous question, what I'm talking about is trying to get yourself into a situation some years down the road where from then on forward the probability of the kind of mess we're, we've been through at the minute is much less likely to happen. It's not really a solution to dealing with the aftermath of the last banking crisis. I mean, I'm kind of thinking about strategies to reduce the probability of another one coming along. You, sir, have the privilege of the final question. Thank you. Andreas Kudras from InTouch Capital Markets. Uh, my question is to you, uh, do you think that not using the regulatory reserves, the banks, and only using the price of money, uh, in other words, the interest rates, actually was a mistake in retrospect in the, in the restriction of the growth of money in the banking sector? Uh, I'm not quite... Can you just explain it just for, just for a moment, if you will, what, what do you mean by the no. regulatory reserve? Are you talking about, about As the, a monetary the capi tool. capital uh, of banks? No, no, the regulatory reserve that the banks actually put into, put into the central bank. Uh, so you're talking not, about... Not okay, using okay, them as a monetary tool. So you're, you're talking about the, um, the balances that the commercial banks hold at the central bank in the form or of... Or the reserve in the ECB of 2%. That right. 
Well, um, I mean, there, there, is, there is an important story there about the degree of liquidity of the assets of the banking system. And it's certainly true that if you look at the balance sheet of banks, certainly in the UK, and I suspect it was true you know, in many other countries, the liquidity of the assets of the banks going into this crisis was unusual in a historical sense, in that if you went back into the UK history, went back 30, 40, 50 years ago and before, UK banks had a very high percentage of their assets in highly liquid investments, treasury bills, UK government debt, deposit balances at the Bank of England, which in stressed and extreme circumstances remained relatively liquid sources of funds that they could sell and use in extremis if people tried to start pulling their debt funding from them on the other side of the balance sheet. And that absolutely was not the situation that banks in general were in by 2006, 2007. In fact, they hadn't been in that position, and Charles knows this much, much, much better than I, they hadn't been in that position for many years. In other words, the amount of truly liquid assets that you really could sell in stressed conditions in markets that would carry on operating pretty well, the amount of those assets relative to the size of the balance sheets of banks had, sh had shrunk to extraordinarily low levels. Now, that's why part of the response, I think, rightly, of regulators across the world, and certainly here in the UK, is, as well as focusing on the capital requirements, to look at the liquidity of the assets of the banks as well. And I'm, you know, what's happening in, in many countries is that there will be tougher requirements on the liquidity position of the banks, not so much the capital side that I've been focusing on, the liquidity side, which will make them, make, make them more robust in future as well. So I think liquidity and capital are sort of two, two tools to use to make the system more robust. For what it's worth, as a final comment, I think in some sense the more fundamental response is on the capital and the leverage side. Because if people are pretty confident that there is enough capital there, there's enough of an equity buffer, then even if people get really nervous about the value of the assets, it's much less likely that people who provided debt funding will respond to that nervousness by simply withdrawing their funding. It's once you've got to the withdrawal funding point that it's very useful to have banks have liquid assets because then they can sell the assets relatively costlessly, pay people off, and, and, and deal with the withdrawal of funding on the debt side. But the reason I think that having more equity and lower leverage is more fundamental is it, 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 it protects you from even getting to that point. David, after a very clear and persuasive lecture, you've answered all the questions in a very open and forthright manner. So can we thank him in our normal way? Thank you very much.